Let's pray together, and then we'll get into our time of study. Bow your heads with me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank You again for Your faithfulness to us. We thank You for holding creation up by the Word of Your power, by holding Your people together with the same. We know You love us. We believe that You are here with us, and we ask You in light of that to give us the wisdom and grace to understand Your Word. Uh, Be near to us this morning. Be near to Your people. Be near to those who do not know the Gospel and who don't know You. Be near to the brokenhearted and those who are struggling, Lord. May You reveal Your goodness and grace and Your all-sufficiency to them this morning. Open our eyes, ears, and hearts to receive the truth of Your Word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles. I must confess, I wasn't really sure how I was going to make a sermon out of this text this morning, but we have to finish Daniel chapter 2, and we can't just skip past this significant chunk of Bible. It is God's Word. I believe that every verse matters, and so I'm going to preach through those verses, and we're all going to love it. (laughs) So please, Daniel 2, and I will start at verse uh, 45, even though that belongs to another section of text. It, uh, it's a good lead-in from there to the end of the chapter in verse 49. So, please follow along as I read. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. Thus ends chapter 2. And of course, the goal when we get into chapter 3 is to try to get through chapter 3 all in one, <laughs> all in one sermon. Uh, we, wanna, we don't want to get lost in the weeds here in the details, but we also want to understand uh, what the Lord is telling us through the prophet Daniel. We don't want to miss the significance of that. So that is why we have taken our sweet time in chapter 2, but I trust that we will get through it today through the remainder of this text. Sermon title is called Dominion Dreams and Pag- uh, Pagan Praise. Perhaps I, uh, um, commas, punctuation saves uh, sermon lessons, sermon titles, but it is actually Dominion Dreams. No pause, no comma. Dominion Dreams, because that is what Nebuchadnezzar is dreaming of. And Pagan Praise, highlighting, of course, King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, justified reaction uh, to the prophet Daniel. And so, uh, the, angle, the angle of attack really this morning 
is to help you guys consider sort of in, 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 our, in our leaving of Daniel chapter 2 to chapter 3, uh, certain encouragement and certain, uh, we could say certain certainties, right? Certain confidences that we are left with in light of the fact that we have just gone over a disclosure in pretty specific terms of God's entire redemptive, redemptive plan, really unto uh, the consummation of all of, of all of the new creation. We've started with Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, the gold head, as Daniel describes here in chapter 2, all the way until this stone cut out without hands, which subsequently, after subduing these kingdoms, and while subduing these kingdoms, really, um, becomes a mountain which fills the entire world. And I think there's a great amount of encouragement we can receive uh, from this text, even in the here and now, especially as it involves kingdoms and nations, their rise and their fall, um, it is interesting to survey right now the political landscape, and I can tell you very honestly that if this were several years ago, I would probably be, I would probably be very worried. I remember trying to take a relaxing trip to Palm Springs, California with my wife, and we were going to enjoy a few days away in the scorching heat of the desert. Good times in Southern California. And I remember hearing something on the radio. Gosh, I want to say this was 2009 or 2010. She's shaking her head, <laughs> justly so. And I just heard something on the radio about our newly minted president. Um, his name is Barack Obama. And it was something that he said, and I was so disturbed by the anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-constitutional nature of what he said, I just lost my mind right then and there. My, my breathing got short. I got heart palpitations. And I thought, what is wrong with me? What is happening to me? Why am I so worried about this? And so I think about that in light today and how sometimes even as believers we can be so, we can be so ridiculous and we can be so immature because we are unable to think of the very things, the very important and necessary things that transcend the here and now. The thing, that, that, the thing that transcends, that is in my mind here, of course, is the transcendent nature of Christ's kingdom. And here I am many years ago thinking about the fragility of the United States of America. Absolutely, I love my country and I love many of the things for which it stands. However, we realize that even this nation, even this kingdom of the United States of America is going to be taken over by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I had no such view back then. And now what once caused me terror of having this really very, I would say, nihilistic view of the future, now is a hopeful one. And the very thing that I was afraid of occurring, now I look forward to with hope. Yes, at some point, at some point in some way, our own nation will fall. But in, but in due time, our nation will fall on its knees to the Lordship of Christ. And that is something over which we can all rejoice. I don't wish for pain and suffering on our people. I don't wish for gulags. I don't wish for communism. In the name of Christ, I despise those things. However, even if they do happen, even if they do happen in our time, we have to view those things within the scope of God's promises in Scripture, namely Daniel chapter 2. That, this, that his kingdom, the kingdom of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is an everlasting kingdom. It is a kingdom that will never be taken over. It is a kingdom that will never fall. It, it is a kingdom that will not be left, verse 44 says, 
for another people, but it will crush and put an end to all of these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. So we can view that text with great hope. There are things out of this narrative that give the Christian, that give the church immense certainty, immense confidence, and unsurpassed encouragement. So even though things may go terribly wrong in our own nation, the Christian above all people is the only person that does not have to fret, that does not have to sorrow as the world sorrows. We can have great hope and great joy because we know that in all of this, Our Lord, the true King, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, is working to bring about the greatness and the fullness of his kingdom. A kingdom, and many would have a hard time believing this, a kingdom whose righteousness and justice surpasses the very nation in which we live. We don't have to be under any illusion about it. We have to think think beyond the scope of the United States as much as we treasure some of its some of its values, some of its characteristics. We have to look forward to a greater kingdom, right? If you think about from the the mindset of the first century Jew, they also had to look beyond the, the, the geographical, physical Mount Zion and temple. They had to look beyond that to a greater kingdom, a greater nation, a greater country that pointed to the kingdom of God and the reign of the true king. And that is what we pray for. We pray for his kingdom come. We pray for his will be done to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so with that, the key word today, the key word today is a Hebrew word, and it is yatsib. Not yatsi, yatsib. Okay. It is the word, I'll guide you to it. It is the word that Daniel uses in verse 45 when he says, So the dream is true. It's the word for true. And its interpretation is trustworthy. Right. It's interesting to note, and I believe it is significant, that this is the exact same word uttered from King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, verse 8, where his counselors are giving him the runaround, right? They say, let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen that the command for me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there's only one decree for you. And of course, that decree is that you would be torn limb from limb, right? You'd be, you will die, you will surely die, and your house, furthermore, will be made into a public restroom. How degrading, how insulting, How terrifying that your family name and line and household would be threatened with such a demise. But he says, know for certain. I know for certain. I know this is for for certain. However, when Daniel is done telling him the dream and interpreting it, he uses the same word, and I believe on purpose. Oh, king, you you may think you are certain about this. But this is what we can be really certain about. This is the thing that is true. This is the thing that is undeniable. This is the thing that we all must know for sure. What is going to happen based on your dream is certain. It is true. And that is the first, and I think that's the first application here. The first thing about which the Christian can be certain is that God's word is true. 
I think especially in times like these, the last thing that the church needs to be doing is second-guessing the truth and the validity of God's Word. And so many believers struggle with that. So many people who name the name of Christ struggle with that certainty. And they invite all kinds of doubt. They invite all kinds of wishy-washiness, usually from scholars or friends, which is based a lot in hearsay, and I would say mostly in unbelief. Is that people that propound the uncertainty of Scripture bring that to the table. That is their presupposition, is that Scripture cannot, from beginning to end, be reliable. It must be questioned to the point of doubt and to galvanize unbelief. But for the Christian, we bring that presupposition to the table. And if we don't, we need to repent from that. We need to bring the presupposition to the table of Scripture's reliability, right? One of, the, one of the initial things we learn in our introduction to the Christian faith is the Scriptures, right? I think it's the first, first thing in our very confession is the Word of God, right? The Holy Scriptures, the acknowledgement that God has spoken, and He has spoken in such a way that reveals who He is, reveals what His will is, right? Reveals His nature, His holiness, His goodness, His righteousness, and that this word that is spoken to us has been preserved. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is authoritative. It is inspired. That it is, it is God-breathed. It is binding. Right? And I think something very important to us today is that it is clear. Many of us struggle with that. We struggle with this issue of the clarity of Scripture. We think that we may, we may assert that God has spoken, but but, it's, but, but the word is sort of, it's obfuscated. We can't really be sure it means this or that. And while there are difficult, there are difficult passages, we understand that God's message to humanity, his self-disclosure and his plan to restore the cosmos through the death and resurrection of his son is crystal clear. This, this issue of God's kingdom advancing toward a particular end to where the entire world is full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water cover the seas. That is clear. That is crystal clear. And that is the word we proclaim. So we go and we tell all men to repent. We tell them to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. We tell them then, upon believing and trusting in him, that they now serve the king, serve him by faith and in the, the power of his Holy Spirit. And that we are used, being used as God's very instruments to proclaim the greatness of and grace of that kingdom. That is clear. And that is our starting point. That is the very foundation of, of, of the Christian. And I, and, I, and I am so moved by Daniel's stance. Because this is the time for Daniel to be wishy-washy. This is the time for Daniel to tell King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, I know this dream was startling. I know this dream to a degree was just pretty terrifying, kind of, kind of confusing for you. And you know, oh king, you can take it or leave it. Here's what it means, but you know, if you, if you really want to believe it and latch onto it, that's one thing, but, but really what God is giving you here is less of a declaration and more of a suggestion. <laughs> but no, we see Daniel authoritatively and confidently and with great certainty proclaiming this dream back to the king and then interpreting it and saying, just as sure as you were regarding the intent of your of, of, of your counselors, so you can be certain, so you can be sure 
that as the Lord has revealed this dream and the meaning of this mystery to you, you can be absolutely sure, O king, of what is going to take place. That is not, friends, an isolated confidence. Please remember that. Keep that close to your heart. That what you believe about Christ is not an isolated confidence. When you proclaim it to others, whether it be in your own household or in Manitou Springs or somewhere in the city, your workplace, wherever, when you proclaim Christ, you can proclaim it with the greatest, with the deepest confidence. I mean, when you're, when you're proclaiming the king, what, 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 what kind of, uh, <laughs> how offensive would it be to him if you are not certain of his lordship, if you are not certain of his saving grace, and you're going to go and you're going to tell people, hey, hey, you know, um, there's this guy named Jesus, and I think, I think he was born one time. I mean, all the evidence points toward that, and he died, and some people don't believe he died on a cross. Some believe it was Judas, um, and then he rose. I believe he rose from the dead. You may not believe he rose from the dead, right? So all you see is this lack of confidence as if you are on shaky ground, and from what we have learned again and again from the last few weeks of teaching is that you stand on the rock you stand on the mountain, you have the high ground, and your job is to go out there and let the unbeliever know that they are on sinking sand, right? They are sinking. They are in the quicksand of unbelief, and that is no, you have no right. I don't care if they're an unbeliever. You have no right to get down there and stand on the quicksand with them and act like the word that you are preaching to them is sort of certain or sort of true or kind of reliable, it's time to be absolutely certain of the word that has been proclaimed to us, right? that we stand on the rock and that the word of the rock is true and certain and that everyone from highest king, highest pharaoh, highest emperor to lowliest peasant needs to be standing on the rock as well. This is a word for everyone. And you can be certain of it. And I would say not only can you be certain of it, you must be certain of it. Souls, very souls, depend on the gospel being preached with certainty. So once again, don't offend the king by acting like this is something that might be true or might be for you. No, this is the word that is preached to everyone. God knows, who are, God knows those who are his. And if you are his, represent him faithfully. Even Jesus was certain of this very thing. He was certain that the Scripture could not be broken. He was certain that the Scripture is God's Word. I mean, I think of his great high priestly prayer. Sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. How do we grow in godliness? By the Word of truth. That is the instrument by which God makes us like Jesus, is the Word of truth. How did Jesus answer to Satan when Satan's twisting Scripture? He uses the Word. Let us have the very confidence of our Lord when we answer anyone at any time. Thus saith the Lord, the Word of God says. And go into it with the presupposition, with the starting point. That what God has said, what we have written today in the Scriptures, in the Bible, is true. 
We brought up that scripture from 1 Peter chapter 3. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Right? That is how you are ready to give every man an answer. If you have not first sanctified Christ as holy, if you do not understand that your starting point is that Jesus is Lord, you are not prepared. That's, that's the application of that text. That's what Peter is telling, um, telling the saints who are under immense persecution and under immense pressure to cave into the spirit of the age and to go back to the life that they were once living as pagans. And he says, how do we resist that? How do we stand firm? Well, first, understand that Jesus is Lord. And I think in the fullness of that, we understand that not only is Jesus Lord, but Jesus is with you, right? Sanctify Christ the Lord, or regard Christ the Lord as holy. Right? Have you ever thought of that? When you go into any encounter you are certain that Christ is with you. Right? But not just any old Christ. Christ the Lord is with you. And so the question then becomes at some point, if we're honest with ourselves, why do we lack the confidence? Why are we shaking in our boots? Why are we hesitant to preach the truth? Why? Christ the Lord is with us. That is your starting point. Go in believing that Go in believing that and see what happens. See what the Lord does. But don't go in with an unbelieving, lukewarm, wishy-washy heart. Be certain of it. Be certain like Daniel that God has spoken and that what he has said is trustworthy and cannot be undone or broken. And what an amazing grace that God uses crooked people to make his word known. Imperfect people still being sanctified, still growing in the Lord. He uses us. What an immense privilege to be ambassadors of the king, as Daniel says here, the great God. I, lo I love that. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So that's the first thing. Let's, let's, let's read on here. It says in verse 46, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. That's really something. Right? I think that's the next thing we can be certain. I think uh, certain of, and this is what will inevitably flow from the preaching of God's truth, is that we can be certain that God can come in and take over no matter what the setting Right? It's kind of a long point, but I think that's one thing we want to be certain of. Right? God arrives just when God <laughs> intends to. He's neither late nor early. Right? He can come in and mount an offensive whenever he wants to. Right? He is on his own timeline, and we are subject to that. And you think about Daniel. Daniel in exile. Right? Our first message in Daniel was called God in Exile. And it gives, almost gives the sense that God isn't where he belongs, but this, this, this truth that we have to read all throughout the text of Daniel is that God is always exactly where he belongs, right? He, 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 the Ark of the Covenant, remember, is taken into the temple of Dagon. What happens? God claims that ground as his own. You think this is Dagon's temple. You guys are so funny. Oh, this is my place, right? I'm in your house now, right? And I'm taken over. And to prove that, your idol made by the hands of man is broken. Right? 
And so now we will find this, as this process begins, we see the breaking of Nebuchadnezzar. We see the breaking of a pagan king who, from a man's point of view, has all earthly power and authority. And unfortunately, King Nebuchadnezzar, and we will see as this narrative goes on, some very profound things stick out of the text, where Nebuchadnezzar, I really think that in his mind, nope, this, he wants to keep this dream from being fulfilled. You notice in Daniel chapter 3, the statue that he suddenly makes? It's all made of gold. No, Babylon is going to last forever. And whoever doesn't bow down to this statue that I've created is going to die a terrible death. It's going to be thrown into the furnace. But we are starting to see these cracks revealed in the heart and mind of the king. He, even he can acknowledge, even he can acknowledge in his now unbelieving state that there is something special, there is something unique, at least captivating, about the God that Daniel worships, this, this great God. And he even says, your God this God that I do not know, this God that I do not acknowledge, and I would say, for all intents and purposes, this God that I have conquered, right? I have raided your people, Daniel. I have exiled them and brought them into Babylon. In his mind, what can your God do? Now he's starting to see. Now he's starting to see. And God's timing is on his own timing. It's on his own watch. And Daniel, though, an exile, though serving in the court of a pagan king, does not in any way limit what his God can do. I think some, some of us learned that song in children's church long ago. My God is so big or great, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. And then it's like we turn nine and we stop believing that. But Daniel knows there is nothing my God cannot do. There is no place in this world that God cannot claim as His own, especially a kingdom as rich and prosperous and magnificent as Babylon. God can come in and say, nope, this is mine. This land is mine. Your hanging gardens are mine. Your towers are mine. Your king is mine. And that's what He's doing. And we see this really pronounced, the fact that King Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face. And if you, and if you compare this to even some of the some other scriptures, what, 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 what King Nebuchadnezzar is actually doing here looks like, an, looks like an act of worship. In some sense, looks like the behavior of a priest as he serves before the presence of God. Look what he does. First, he bows. He falls upon his face. And that at least is a mark of respect, honor, to recognize the greatness of something or someone. And the word here for for bow, the, the fact that Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face is, is, is a word that is connected elsewhere in the Scriptures only to idol worship. So we, we're not really sure what, is, what, is, what, the, what the main emphasis is here. I, I think the best way of understanding this is that King Nebuchadnezzar considers Daniel's God at this point one of many. Though, though unique, though special, though able to reveal this dream, whereas his, his ministers could not, I think Nebuchadnezzar is still thoroughly pagan. But he does say, yeah, your, your God is something special, Daniel. And he falls upon his face to, to at least pay respect. It says, did homage to Daniel. And then what, what's the next thing? He gave orders to present to him an offering and a fragrant incense. Kind of gives us, kind of sets for us this image of like, 
of service in a temple where there's, where there's, where there's incense being burned. Um, also gives us this, this image of even the church today where we are living sacrifices. Right? We, serve in the, we serve in the temple of God. We bow down to the Lord and, and pay, him, pay Him homage. Now, we don't know if he is worshiping Daniel himself or he is worshiping or, or paying homage to the God that Daniel speaks for. Once again, I don't think that's, that's the main point, but we don't get any idea here that Daniel actually was the recipient of of, of, of worship as a God. I don't think he is, he is receiving worship here um, on purpose. What, for all that we know about Daniel, he would, he would uh, shut that idolatry down right away. So I think, that, you know, much in the style of, of, uh, of, of Revelation, of the book of Revelation, where, where, where the apostle John sees all these visions and the, that the angel presents to him, and then they're so overwhelming, what does John do? And we say, John ought to know better, yes. But he bows down to this angel to worship him, and the angel says, see to it that you do not do that, right? That's crossing the line. Don't worship me, worship God, right? And I think we know the intent of Daniel's heart as the narrative continues on, that his, his instruction to, t- to King Nebuchadnezzar is worship God. Worship the God that I serve. Worship the God who is going to subdue your kingdom and every kingdom after it. That's the true God. That's the worship. That's the God you should worship, and you are going to find that out the hard way, as we will, as we will discover in ensuing chapters. But know for certain that God is mounting a takeover here. And that leads us to the third thing. We can be certain, and I love this, and this is a really obvious one, but I think based on King Nebuchadnezzar's actions, there is a foreshadowing here, is that we can be certain we can be certain that all men, all peoples, will worship the Lord. Just as Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face and does homage to Daniel, presents him with an offering and fragrant incense, we can see that with this king, as an example, provides a foreshadowing of what will become of future Gentile nations. I mean, we're living in that reality right now. Most of us are Gentiles. And we worship the living God together. And this is a promise of what will happen to all the world. And I think this is well put. If we go back to Psalms, start in the book of Psalms here. If you want to flip with me really quickly. Psalm chapter 22. We've actually gone to Psalm 2 quite a bit where we refer to the, the kings of the world eventually coming to bow down and to kiss the sun. But Psalm chapter 22 gives us some insight into this. Psalm chapter, two, verse, Psalm chapter 22, verses 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. Right. For the kingdom of, is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those, listen to this, all those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. See, this is the confidence with which we preach the gospel. Even though we can't see it, right? Sometimes we just expect short-term results all the time. We want it here and now. But as time goes on, as time marches on, friends, the whole world will realize at some point, here we are, eating the dust. We cannot keep our soul alive. What can give us hope? What can give us life? What can give us salvation? Oh, only the Lord. 
That's why we preach. We preach that very message. Only the Lord. And He rules over the nations. And this is just the starting point for King Nebuchadnezzar. This is just the starting point for the nations. That the king of Babylon is paying homage to the God of Daniel and will eventually surrender his life to the Lord, the God of Daniel. But this is nothing that should surprise us. That's the point here. None of this should surprise us because the Scripture has taught this, has always taught this, and that we can be sure of. You turn again, Psalm 65. I think we've hit this passage before. It was in our call to worship a while back. Verse 2, O you who hear prayer, to you all men come. Right? All men come. Psalm 66, next psalm over. All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. Selah. And then you get into verse 5. Come and see the works of God. See, I love this. This is our, talk about a personal testimony. This, I think this frames it up well. Come and see the works of God who is awesome in his deeds toward the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There let us rejoice in him. It always cracks me up when churches, various churches, and they try to get people through the doors, and they'll say something like this, your story matters. Come and let us hear your story. Right? You ever see those signs? You see them around town. Your story is important to us. Right? I mean, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> on one hand, yes, we should be interested in what people have to say. But why do we bring you guys here up to Mount Zion every Sunday to hear God's story? Because let's, let's be honest here. Comparison, your story ain't that interesting. We want to hear about God's story and His plan and His awesome works, right? His, awesome, his awesome deeds toward the sons of men. You know something, guys? Throughout your life, most people are going to complain about the things you do to them. Many times you're going to get complaints about the things people do for you. You're going to go in there with the best of intentions, and your brother or sister in Christ just ain't going to understand. Right? So sometimes, you've got to trust me here, it's better that you don't draw the attention to yourself. So forget your story for a little bit. Right? Your story needs to fade into God's story. You need to tell people what God has done for you. What God has done. That's God's story. And His deeds are awesome. And they're interesting. <laughs> there let us rejoice in Him, the psalmist says. He rules by His might forever. His eyes keep watch on the what? The nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Points to Nebuchadnezzar. He's still rebellious. He will exalt himself. And God will tell him, no, <laughs> you will exalt me. Psalm 72. 72, 11. Maybe I got the wrong one. Yeah, I do. Boy, no, that's Psalm 71. Here we go. And let all kings bow down before him. All nations bow serve him. Why would, why would the psalmist repeat this theme about kings and nations if there was not some plan to actually bring this to fruition? As if this is the way it should be. Not that it's going to happen, but it really needs to be this way. No, it will be this way. 
This is where history is headed. This is where, re, re, where redemptive history is headed, folks. All kings will bow down. All nations serve him. So let us not look hopelessly upon the nations. I mean, I think sometimes we think of certain things. What is, what is going to, what is possibly going to change what's going on in war-torn Africa? What, what is possibly going to happen that's going to change what's going on in Muslim-dominated Middle East? The gospel. We have a hard time thinking about that. Yet one day, the Middle East is going to bow the knee and serve Christ. One day, war-torn Africa is going to bow the knee and serve Christ. And, and let, me, let me give you something here. That work is already happening. Christ is already being preached over there. Right. With a lot of suffering, with a lot of blowback. But Christians just won't seem to go away. Right? The question many an enemy says is, why won't you just die? Right? Why won't you just go away? Why don't you just shut up? Why don't you just stop preaching Christ? Because we can't stop. Right? Christ will not go away until all knees have bowed to him. We can be certain of that. Psalm 86.9, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. All nations. What a thing to look forward to. We read that same thing in our, in our uh, Scripture reading today, Isaiah 49. Those who come and bow down, right? Those who come and pay homage, even to God's people. God's people share in this honor. And we actually see uh, Old Testament passages, Old Testament prophecies that are originally ascribed to Israel, now ascribed to the church. If you read Revelation chapter 3, the church of Philadelphia, he says, I know your deeds, behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because in all ages, when the world sees a suffering church, what's their conclusion going to be? God must hate you. He must not like you. He must not love you. God has forgotten you. God has abandoned you. It's the age-old lie that the people of God are faced with and sometimes fall into temptation of believing. God does not love me. God has abandoned me. God is not with me. But he says, persevere. Right? Eventually, I will make them know that I have loved you. I will demonstrate to them that I am with you. And they will have to come to that conclusion. It's the same thing we look forward to even when we gather, when we gather for Lord's Day worship. In 1 Corinthians 14.25, we read this, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. And I love how King Nebuchadnezzar is such a prototype of that expectation, of that inevitability in God's redemptive plan. From the highest to the lowest, even people who may wander in here unawares of what we do here, will bow the knee, will bow down, and declare that God is among us. And see, here's the thing. Nebuchadnezzar, at this point, we may say, you know, we kind of put our Calvinist thinking hats on, and we think, okay, um, Okay, is, is Nebuchadnezzar really saved here? Is he, does he really, is he regenerated here? If you, if you want to ask that kind of question, I would say at this point, 
he is not. But know this, you can still be unregenerate and know a lot about God. You can hear the word. You can even agree with the claims of Scripture. You can say, oh yes, I believe historically Jesus Christ died on a cross and rose from the dead, and you can still be dead in your sins and trespasses. The pagan, the most ardent pagan, can know a lot about God, can know a lot about Christ, can know a lot about the Bible. Most of us have encountered that. A person who just, by their very lifestyle, despises the Lord, and yet they know Scripture better than you do. It happens. But still, they can understand on some level that God exists, that Jesus is the Messiah, and yet not entrust themselves to him. I think that's what hap- that is what is happening right here to Nebuchadnezzar. He believes that Daniel's God exists. He believes that, look at, the, look at these titles. He is a God of gods, and a Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. He's got three categories. He's a God of gods, right? Even gods will look to him as higher than they are. He is a Lord of kings. Interestingly enough, I think even Lord of kings is a, is a description to a normal human king. So I think Nebuchadnezzar is at least, he's, he's at least admitting, you know, Daniel, your God is at least at my level. You know, he's at least at my level. And he reveals mysteries. He knows the secret things, right? That's something that we, that we love and adore God for, but he knows things that are simply beyond us, right? Jer- Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, right? God knows things that are beyond human comprehension, right? Where were we when he laid the foundation of the earth? We were nowhere. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't exist yet. But listen to this, same verse. But the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Right? We don't know everything. God has not told us everything he knows, but he has told us exactly what we do need to know so that we may obey him and love him, so we may trust in him. We want to observe his law. We want to understand that his word is, that the things that he has revealed to us, they belong to us, right? They are a gift, a gracious gift from God to us, his people. There is, a, there is a uniqueness in that. There is something in that that, is, that makes God worthy of worship. And we understand, too, that from a pagan perspective, right, you, you, had a, you had a pantheon of gods. Most cultures did not have a one true God like Israel did. There was a pantheon of gods. There were many gods. There was a God of, there was a God of the sky. There was a God of the sea. There was, a, there was even a God of dung. Right? I mean, there's... You had a God for everything, right? And in many cases, in most cases, these gods competed. They, they competed with each other for supremacy, and they also made sport of men. So still in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, Daniel's God may be real, but he's just one of many other gods, right? And that's something, friends, that has to be so fixed in our preaching, is that God is not one of many other gods. He is the only true God. He, he deserves and He commands our allegiance, our trust, our obedience in all spheres of life. And we either stand with Him or we stand against Him. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality. He is a God of gods. He is a, a Lord of kings. This word Lord, m- master, it is translated. It, is, it, it refers to 
to, to a master or ruler of something. And once again, this was something that you could ascribe to a, a human ruler. But, but Nebuchadnezzar is on the right path. And I think is in terms of application, you want to, when you preach the gospel, whenever you preach Christ to someone, you want to say things of substance, right? Christianity is a reasonable faith. Once we come to faith in Christ and we have we received a regenerated mind, we realize, wow, this all makes sense. Why didn't I see it before? It's because you were still a, a rebel <laughs> and your heart wasn't circumcised. You were in unbelief. But, but see how Daniel helps King Nebuchadnezzar put it together. Since you have been able to reveal this mystery. See, he's putting it together. He sees, well, if, you're, if your God were a fake, you wouldn't be able, he wouldn't be able to reveal all of this to you, and yet he has. So something, something peculiar is going on here. No doubt at great relief for the king because this was a dream that was haunting him and causing him great consternation. We see that in the fact that he was willing to execute his entire cabinet because they didn't know what to tell him. And so I think that we can, along with that, we can be certain. We can be certain that our ministry will bear fruit. Right? I think Nebuchadnezzar is a case study in perseverance. Most of us will have at least one person, perhaps several people in, that come along in our life where we're just going to have to keep preaching the same truth to them again and again and again. Right? They may not, they, they, won't, they won't receive the gospel the first time they hear it. And I would say, don't give up. This is, this is something that is years in the making between Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar gets some of it, but he doesn't get all of it right away. You have, people, you have people in the New Testament, they were baptized, and then they wanted to pay the apostles money so they could, you know, work that wizardry that they were. They, didn't, they clearly didn't understand. And yet when we, when we continue to preach Christ to those that God has put in our lives, we do so with the hope that, that, that will, it will bear fruit in time. We would hope for a, either a firm rejection or a firm uh, belief in the truth of who Christ is and what He's done. You know, in chapter, in chapter 3, he's threatening to burn Daniel's friends alive, who he's just promoted. And then in chapter 4, he's, he's surveying his kingdom on his balcony. Is this not Babylon? Is this not Babylon that I have built? He's, he's reasoning like a pagan. And, and by our reckoning, years have gone by from, from, from this dream, right? And Nebuchadnezzar still doesn't understand. So this is a call for patient perseverance, trusting God to bear the fruit, right? God knows those who are his own. But we see at least now that Nebuchadnezzar is starting to understand certain things about Daniel and the God that Daniel serves. This, this from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view, this foreign God whom he has brought into exile. And then I'll say, uh, finally, we can be, and this, is, and this is coupled with this idea of a fruit-bearing ministry, is that we can be certain that God's grace will abide. We can be certain that God's grace will abide. You think, well, how do we, how do we come up with that? Well, I think we have to have a behind-the-scenes look at, what, at the implications involved in Daniel's elevation in the kingdom of Babylon along with his friends. So look at verse 48 and 49 with me. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect 
over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, interesting that he uses their Babylonian names, over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. So I think instantly we see grace in the life of Daniel simply by his character, as he, he, could, take, he could take this homage and all this honor and use it to further elevate himself, but, but he thinks strength in numbers. We have to think this along the same lines. Strength in numbers. We are not in the work of the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring honor to ourselves. To say constantly, hey, look at me, look at what I'm doing, look at all this great work. Instantly, his, his, his thought is, I need to get my friends in on this. Because they serve the same God as I do. What, how, how advantageous to be able to bring my, my comrades into this work, my, my, my amigos as it were, and we can continue to make an impact for the true king in the kingdom of Babylon. So never forget that. I've often said that lone rangers are dead rangers. In the work of the gospel, we are never called, at least by my reckoning, not as a regular course of action. We are not called to operate alone. Right? Even Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. We are not called to operate alone. We are not called to isolate ourselves from others. Ministry is a blessed partnership of grace where we are to find like-minded brethren and like-minded sisterin to do the work of the gospel. And with prayer and perseverance, see the Lord bear much fruit. And so here we have Daniel. We see great grace, the grace of God in his own, in his own heart and character. But notice what this does, the elevation of Daniel. He's he, he's, he's no longer just a random uh, third-party uh, wise man in the court. He is elevated to the work of an administrator, right? So before this, he would have had to approach the king through like an intermediary. He would have to have someone represent, representing him. Now, in his station as a chief prefect, um, as, as, as an administrator, as a ruler, look at that, ruler over the whole province of Babylon. That happened to Joseph, right? At, when, when he was able to divine the dream of Pharaoh, basically Pharaoh made him second in command. What he says, he, he rep, what he says is what I say. Right. And the only one over him would be Pharaoh himself. So we see that parallel here as, as God is able to, through his own working and his own timing, see one of his people, one of his representatives, um, quickly exalted amongst the ranks of a pagan empire. So now Daniel can go directly to the king, which means that he is, in a sense, becoming one of Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand men. Now, this is very significant because what hasn't happened yet in Daniel's ministry, historically? We're in the midst of an exile, right? But what has not happened yet is Jerusalem being destroyed. And so I believe that Daniel has been strategically placed at Nebuchadnezzar's side as an agent of grace, really as an, as an intermediary, someone to speak on behalf of a rebellious people. I think that should strike our attention. It is, at, at this point, it will be years before Jerusalem is finally destroyed, where Nebuchadnezzar can't take any more and finally 
brings down the whole program in Jerusalem. And so we have to think of some of the other implications. More than likely, with Daniel serving at Nebuchadnezzar's side, he is a despised man in his own country. He would be someone who is seen as turning his back on his own people. Daniel, why are you standing by the side of that pagan king? Don't you see him oppressing us? He's, he's, he keeps shifting us around. He keeps, he keeps taking us from our home, our home country and bringing us to Babylon where we're his captives. We don't want to be under his kingship. Daniel, what are you thinking? And think of all the things that have happened that happened between this point moving forward in Israel's history. You have King Jehoiakim, who's brought to heel. You have his son, King Jehoiachin, otherwise known as Jeconiah, a king who does evil in the sight of the Lord. He only rules in Judah for three months, three months and ten days, according to Second Chronicles. This is in 597. The sacking of Jerusalem is in 586. So this is about... 13 years before this happened, or 11 years before this happened. Taken captive to Babylon. And even his end is one of grace. But all these things go on. You see all these kings that are still, still ruling, but ne- under, under the administration of Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel's going to be standing right there with him. Even after a second deportation. Thousands and thousands going into exile. And there Daniel is with King Nebuchadnezzar. King Zedekiah, the last king of Judah before it is destroyed, has his children slain in front of him and then his eyes put out, dies in Babylon. And I still think, based on what we know of Daniel, that was the will of God carried out on a rebellious king. And if you are there approving that, guess what your own people are going to think of you? They're going to think that you have turned your back on them, that you are a betrayer, that you aren't one of God's true people. Many slanderous things are going to be said about you, but ultimately, what do we appeal to? To know the heart of Daniel. We appeal to Scripture. And Daniel is a biblical character of whom no evil is spoken. Now listen to Ezekiel. Again, Ezekiel, a contemporary of all these goings-on. Chapter 14, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it and cut it off from both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves. So that's God's reckoning of them. So righteous were they, right? And I don't think they would claim a righteousness of their own, but they were men of faith. They were men of great righteous acts. He said he would spare them. They could deliver themselves. He says that declares the Lord God. So that's God's reckoning of a man like Daniel. He was a righteous man. He is not in the presence of the king doing unrighteousness. God has him right where he wants him. And then he says, if I were to cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they depopulated it and it became desolate so that no one would pass through it because of these beasts, those the, though these three men were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the country would be desolate. So the Lord would spare these men because they are righteous men. And as time goes on and this exile continues, and Jerusalem or Judah rebels with its kings. 
Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar goes and destroys, destroys their capital city and despoils the temple. We also find, here's another, here's another way I think that Daniel is an agent of grace here. In Jeremiah 39, 11 through 12, we read this. Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave orders about Jeremiah, that is the prophet Jeremiah, through Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, saying, Take him, that is Jeremiah, and look after him, and do nothing harmful to him, but rather deal with him just as he tells you. Right. So this is just to say, you may be in the most unlikely of places. Like, what am I doing here? You may even be tempted to say, how in the world is God going to use me in a place like this? And yet here we have Daniel able to be an agent of grace. No doubt by King Nebuchadnezzar's side. And it's not as if we can expect Daniel to be saying nothing on behalf of his people. Surely he is. And even the prophet Jeremiah, a faithful prophet of the Lord, is dealt with graciously. According to James Jordan, says Daniel's position in Babylon meant that each time Jews were taken into captivity, they had a soft landing. It could have gone so poorly for them because, as the Lord rightly reckons, they are a rebellious and stiff-necked people. And yet because of Daniel's presence, they receive a lot of favor. They receive a lot of grace. And I think there's something about that that we can appreciate as Christians. Why do we receive a lot of grace in our time? We receive a lot of grace because one most highly favored stands in the gap, represents us. Our Lord Jesus Christ stands in the gap as our high priest and represents us before a holy God who can justly execute us, who can do away with us with one word. And he would be right in doing so because he is perfectly holy. But because we have his Holy One, His Son, Jesus Christ, who imputes to us His very righteousness, we can stand before God without that terror, without, without fear of being destroyed. We receive grace upon grace, as the, as the Gospel of John tells us. Favor upon favor, where we can look at our life and say, because we have someone who stands with us and represents us, we can look around our lives and all we see is blessing, blessing upon blessing, the abundant favor of God given to us day after day, where we do not have to fear death and eternal separation from God, but precisely the opposite. Nearness, union with Christ, everlasting fellowship with God. And so what is going on in Babylon at this time with Nebuchadnezzar bowing down, with the elevation of Daniel and his friends, with the Jews receiving mercy, all points to the reality in which, we, in which the Christian lives. We have bowed down. We have been humbled. Right? We receive amazing grace because of the one who represents us. Even as time passes, it's grace upon grace. We serve this God who reveals mysteries. And we receive great favor in the kingdom. We serve as His royal priesthood. And, and as time goes on, we watch Nations come and bow down and say, Surely, surely the Lord dwells with you. And sometimes for us, just in closing, that can be a rebuke for us. Ask yourself that question, friends. Are you as sure of the Lord being with you <laughs> as the outsider is? When they come and bow down and they say, Surely the Lord is in this place. Are you the one who says, Yes, I know? Or are you the one who says, uh, Oh, well, I'm, yeah, I, Man, hadn't thought of that much before. And that is where, where so much repentance is needed. 
is to, is to understand and reaffirm that God is with us. He is with us. He provides for us. He gives us great favor. He continues to reveal His Word and His mysteries. He continues to show forth His power. He continues to bring kings to their rightful place, which is on their knees, paying homage to the true and living God and recognizing that He indeed dwells with His people. And so I hope that we can be certain of those things this morning. Certain that God's Word is true. Certain that God can take over even in the most unlikely of settings. Certain that all men will worship the Lord. Certain that our ministry will bear fruit. And certain that God's grace will abide. I hope we are this morning. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank You again for Your amazing grace. We thank You, God, that that Your kingdom is a kingdom of certainty. That we can have the utmost confidence approaching Your throne of grace. Knowing that we are Your people. That we have been called out of the nations to come and bow the knee. To bow the knee in faith. To bow the knee in obedience. And even God to bow the knee in joy. Knowing that when we do so, You then tell us to stand. To not be afraid, but to stand and to prepare ourselves to serve You in Your kingdom and to proclaim its manifold graces to those who do not yet know You. We thank You for that privilege. We thank You, God, that we can view Daniel as an an example of that. An example of grace and faithfulness who does not seek to exalt himself but is only content, Lord, to see You exalted. May we be of one heart and mind regarding that and calling others to worship the true and living God in great joy and fellowship. Lord, help us. Help us by faith to embrace that truth today. I pray, God, if there are any in here this morning whose hearts are filled with doubt, who are not certain, Lord, who are, who are wishy-washy, um, that You would cement their faith to remind them, Lord, of where they stand, not on, the, not on the sinking sand of uncertainty, not on the sinking sand of public opinion, but on the solid rock of truth, the solid rock of Christ and His kingdom, which we proclaim with Your help, Lord. Be with us, sanctify us, encourage us, Lord, as we continue our worship today. In Jesus' precious name, amen.